0: You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Unbothered, I'm bothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel, show improving. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it.
1: So recently I discovered that there is this cool feature on the Spotify page. Like if you go to where you follow me on Spotify, because I'm just going to assume you all are all following Jamel Hill is Unbothered, as well as the other unbothered network podcast, Sanctified and the Black Girl Bravado. If you go to any of those pages or any podcast page on Spotify, they have a feature where you can leave direct feedback about that particular episode that you just listened to. Uh, So right now, if you go to Jamel Hill is Unbothered, go to that page, it will ask you, how did you feel about this episode? You'll see it right there as soon as you click on that podcast that you want to listen to. And however is your response, I get these responses or notifications rather that there are responses for me to view. So I sort of directly get a chance to read your feedback. So I encourage you follow me, follow the Unbothered Network podcast and tell us what you think about what you're listening to because I know a lot of you will give me constructive criticism and or you'll just brighten my day by telling me how much you love it. But either way, I'm going to actually see it. All right, so let's get into it. Very few actors were having a better year than Jonathan Majors, who had two movies that were number one at the box office, Ant-Man and Creed Three. So he went from that To then proceeding to have one of the worst weeks, if not the worst week for an actor in his position. Majors was arraigned on several assault and harassment charges related to an incident in which Majors allegedly struck his accuser in the face with an open hand, which caused, quote, substantial pain and a laceration behind her ear. He also allegedly put his hand on his accuser's neck, causing bruising and more pain. Now, Major's attorney is, of course, denying the accusation and says that Major's accuser has recanted her statement. And the attorney has also claimed to have video footage from the vehicle where the incident took place and witness testimony from the driver that supposedly will exonerate Major's. Well, we'll see. Uh, We'll wait till all the facts come out and see how all of this develops. But this is where I feel the need to remind people that women who are abused often recant or refuse to cooperate with police because sometimes they fear for their own safety. They worry about being believed. If there's children involved and their abuser is the primary breadwinner and in a lot of situations that's the case, then they retract their stories because they are financially dependent on the person who abused them. I am not saying Jonathan Majors is guilty. What I am saying is that this report that the accuser has recanted her testimony, that also falls in line with how sometimes accusers handle these situations so just thought that was a point that was worth sharing guilty or innocent that'll all be settled eventually but my issue with this is related to how y'all just can't leave black women alone just can't let us be happy moisturized drinking our water and minding our business y'all always got to drag us into something and the word of the week is tolerate
0: tolerate just give me your second to speak. It's the word of the week. Huh.
1: Yeah. Now, authorities have identified Major's accuser as a 30-year-old woman that is believed to be his girlfriend. The internet has identified her as a white woman. Now, I don't know what evidence exists that this is the case. I haven't seen any, and if there is some out there, I apologize, but because they are looking at Jonathan Majors' past romantic interests, which are just pictures on the internet for the most part. There has been no confirmation from him whether or not he is actually romantically involved with these women. But because a couple of those women he's been linked to are white, the assumption was that the woman who accused Jonathan Majors of hitting her is indeed a white woman. And when that theory emerged all kinds of ignorance emerged with it. A whole lot of people started summoning the name of Emmett Till, and they were also quick to point out that majors would not have been publicly embarrassed in this way had he been with a sister. The additional layer of this was this idea that had he been with a black woman and this went down, the black woman would have kept quiet so he could maintain his career. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is that bullshit I be talking about. Yes, there is definitely a notorious history of white women lying on black men about sexual abuse, about abuse in general. It has cost many men their lives in the worst case scenarios and their reputations and careers in the best case scenarios. So the side eyes are definitely understood. But for the sake of this commentary, let's just say it's true that majors abuse this woman the implication that a black woman would be more likely to accept the abuse or be silent about it is problematic as hell. We are not your punching bags, literally, nor are we your sparring partners because some folks seem to think that a black woman would have fought Major's back if he got out of pocket. As if A, that man doesn't have a 22-pack of abs and as if he isn't a grown-ass man and B, as if being in an abusive relationship is somehow... A desirable relationship goal for us. Now, if it turns out Majors is an abuser, why is this a problem for Black women? We don't deserve to be with abusers either. But it does show the unique burden placed on Black women in abusive relationships, particularly if the abuser is a Black man. The expectation is that our personal safety and overall well being are secondary to our racial solidarity. It is true and also extremely unfortunate that a lot of black girls and women are pressured in the silence about their abuse because they know what the criminal justice system does to black men. So when it's said that black girls and women aren't protected, this is an example. We're just supposed to tolerate shitty treatment for the sake of everyone else. Tolerate the word of the week.
0: Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week.
1: And now on to today's show. My guest today is a dear friend and a former colleague who has an amazing show on HBO, a dope ass podcast. And whenever he graces a television screen, it's always memorable because he's so damn thoughtful and good. As a media personality, he does it all. But his superpower is making people think. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, host of HBO's Game Theory, my good friend, Bomani Jones. You know, Bo, there is always an upside and a downside of when you have a friend, somebody that you feel like you know decently well on the podcast. The upside is that in doing the research as I prepare for your interview like I would any other, I discover things about you that I did not know, which we will talk about throughout the course of this podcast, yes. The downside is that, it always makes me a little bit nervous. Now, I don't know if you go through this because sometimes you have your friends on your shows. Me, hell, you had your mama on your show before. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but that's always like, oh, my goodness. I, I feel more pressure to actually do a good interview because you are also a peer and a colleague and somebody that I respect.
2: Uh, I appreciate that. But when I get friends on, it stops being an interview and we just going to kick it. Like my buddy Joel Anderson is one of the best stories I had when I was, uh, when my buddy Gabe was doing the podcast with me. And Joel called Gabe and was like, So, what are we gonna talk about so I can prepare? And Gabe's response was, You'll find out when I do. I'm like, Nah, man, we just here hanging out. I, I figure that's the easiest thing in the world to do.
1: You are correct. Um, so hopefully it'll be a hang, but I do want people to learn things about you because one thing that I did notice in so many things that I read about you. I listened to I listened to your podcast, but I didn't want to listen to your podcast for this. I wanted to listen to the podcast you were on as a guest. Um, because one thing I did realize is that people often have you on their podcast and They just ask you things about takes and what's going on in the sports world, like, what do you think about Kyrie? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? But people don't actually learn enough, I feel like, about your own personal journey. So we're going to definitely get into that. But first, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is unbothered, and that is, when did you become
2: unbothered? I'm trying to figure out when I was actually, like, for real bothered. That's a very good question. I would probably say, though, for me, it was probably after one of those firings, um, whether it be it out of grad school, you get a radio station, goes out of business, all these things. It's probably more than anything else, the grad school situation, because up until that point, I had never entertained the possibility that there was something that I could not do. All right. And. The question about grad school is not whether I could or couldn't do it. The reality just comes down to did or didn't. And that falls like right under didn't. But let's just hypothetically say that it was a couldn't. Wow. So you couldn't get a PhD at a top 30 program in economics. It's not really an insulting thing to say. It's really not. Like it's just not the worst. Then you kind of look up and you realize, man, everybody has some measure of trip and fall that comes in this. And you just kind of keep going. Right, the people that have the harshest things to say about it typically are people that probably were nowhere close to it in the first place. So then, after that, it's just kind of like, oh, okay, you do what you can, and then you go from there.
1: So you often joke, uh, you do it on radio, and certainly I've seen you do it on TV before. You used to joke about the number of times you've been fired. Um, how many would that would that be?
2: <laughs> you know, it's actually funny because I actually haven't been fired in a while, so like I kind of lost track. All right, so I had the grad school thing. ESPN.com let me go. Then I worked at the radio station in Raleigh and they got sold and the new people didn't pick me up, which is in effect firing. Then the next gig was at the satellite radio station, but they full on went out of business. Like that wasn't personal at all. So I'll count it at three. Three is a pretty good place to decide. Like I've had columns at places they've decided to, you know, not pay for anymore. And you realize that's a little bit different. That's just straight money type stuff.
1: So it seemed like at every turn when that happened, it doesn't appear that you got discouraged ever. So why did those setbacks never fully take root with you?
2: Well, no, I got lucky on one of them. I was definitely discouraged when ESPN.com let me go, because I had had a year or two that I had just been like, well, one full year where I said at the end of this year, I'm going to go for freelancing at this place to actually having a contract writing for ESPN.com. And I pulled that off and then I got in it. And I realized that when your immediate superior is not the person who like headed such a decision, your life can get a little bit miserable. Right. And so they let me go. And the thing was I got one of these patronizing talks on the way out the door and I had my man tell me that I, quote, wasn't ready for the big leagues, unquote, and all kinds of stuff like that. That was real disappointing, but the reason was I had gotten into writing through such an unconventional way that I didn't know if I lost that gig writing. what would even be the next gig that I was like trying to go to go get? And I was like 27 at this point. I wasn't really interested in going and covering high schools and nothing like that at that point. Like I had been a national columnist. I didn't really want to it wasn't that I was too proud to take those steps back. I just honestly did not want to do that, like as a thing. But I got lucky. I remember my buddy Adam Gold and Riley, uh, who was program director at the radio station at the time, and I called him to complain about how them people was doing me wrong at ESPN.com. And his response was, So you can do radio now. And so I stumbled into something that I was made for, right? And so I had a little short-term teaching gig that got me through in terms of paying bills because the radio thing wasn't gonna pay nothing. But I was able to parlay that into a full-time gig. Like that was the thing that stopped me. Now, when when that place did, the new place bought them and they didn't pick me up. I had no concern in the world. Like I was so aware at that point that I was really, really good at what I was doing. I didn't know where the place was going to be. I thought I was probably going to have to move, but I was like, I ain't going to have a problem finding another gig. Like I, I, this thing right here, I got this. Like all you got to do is find one person to say yes. By the same token, it takes takes one person to say no, to make you feel like you ain't got nothing going for you. But that's typically just the decision of one person.
1: I met you in 06. We got to ESPN.com the same year. And I remember when you told me that they weren't bringing you back and I was stunned. And I know the person in question who was the key and we both know who that is, who was the key factor and you not returning. And I remember just being so shocked because I thought you were such a a funny writer. I mean, I know you're not you don't consider yourself to be necessarily a comedian, but like the way you looked at sports and the way you wrote, I thought was just really unconventional for what was at the time considered to be how our profession, how you did it. And it was very different. And the observations and obviously the commentary were just so on point. (laughs) It's why later on when ESPN came back around, I'm sure you got a lot of amusement considering what your origin point was with the company.
2: (laughs) Yeah, You know what I realized though, is that that company is really big. And so when one person does something, you feel like ESPN has done it when in reality it might just be one person. Like The thing that got me when they let me go was I'm built the way I'm built. And so I made a decision that I think I had like a month and a half or something between when they told me they weren't going to renew my contract and when the contract was actually up. And I worked that thing to the last day. Like I am sure that if I had said, I don't want to do anything anymore, nobody would have really had a complaint, but that didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. So I worked it to the last day and there used to be a conference call and I got on that conference call every single day. And I had told a couple people on staff that I wasn't coming back and everybody seemed to be very surprised. But I remember I'm on a call one day and one of the people I had told that I wasn't coming back there was some story that somebody was pitching to be done. And that guy was like, you should have Bo do it. And one of the people with, you know, it wasn't the person who I hold accountable for this, but one of the people who was involved in the decision when my guy said that was like, yeah, we should do that. And I was like, oh, okay. I see what's going on here. All you had to do was shake it. You could act like you didn't hear it, whatever it happened to be. But I remember when they they called me, talk about that and to let me know they weren't letting me go like one of the things I forget it was two things but one of the things I remember they said was that they didn't think that I was a good enough reporter which I thought would in general have been a fair criticism because that wasn't really my background but I was like but hey man because I missed a conference call one day you had me report this piece out right here and when I sent it in you told me how good it was so I'm a little confused did I not figure out how to do the reporting that you wanted along the way and it was something else that they had said as a rationale that did not fall in line with what they were asking me to do at the time. And I was just like, hey, if you think that I'm not a good enough reporter to work on this level, that's fine. I'm just trying to figure out why it was you just asked me to do it when you didn't have to. and seemed to be somewhat pleased with what the results were. you know." And then you just look at that and you're like, oh, okay, this is probably not about how good I am at this. But at the same time, it wasn't like an affirmation. Like It wasn't like I saw that and was like, I'm the best in the world. No, I thought that some of their criticisms were fair. And I didn't know how to get past, you know, like how it would be necessarily that I would go about correcting or fixing those things. But I left with the respect of my peers. Like when I left graduate school, that was another part of it. I left with the respect of my peers. And in the end, that one is always more important than the bigger thing. Now, when I got back, the thing that had happened was somebody called me that I had worked with before and was like, hey, we want you to come back and work on this thing. And I said, you understand why this doesn't make any sense to me, right? And I was coming back to, well, I guess it was still page two at the time. There was, it was under new management, but it was page two at the time. And the guy I was talking to, I was like, he basically said, well, that guy's not here anymore. Like it isolated for me that really one person can make such a decision that honestly threw my life into a whole bunch of different stuff, but it was just how one person felt. And so I talk about ESPN being a big place. That's going on in the dot-com world. Separate from that completely. Now that I'm back and have this like ESPN affiliation, I was doing I was getting like two hundred dollars a week or something like that to make blog posts. Like that's what I was doing. Lynn Hoppins had taken over, but what that meant was I had this ESPN thing on me. And so I talked to a guy named Jason Romano, one of my favorite people. Always like I think the first person to put me on TV. He put me on for Outside the Lines, and then once I was back around, I started getting on Outside the Lines with Bob Lee because Bob had always been a big fan of my work. But I was doing Outside the lines like two, three times a week. Like that's back when people were really watching that show, too. Like they they figured out that I could talk about anything. So they called me to talk about anything. And I was just on there all the time. And then it just got to a point or a place basically where all the people who were producers at ESPN saw that I was on television. And then gradually I got back like from the ground up. You
1: have a bachelor. You have two masters. So what was the original career plan?
2: So the plan for me was, and this is like right at the turn of the millennium, and this, this like notion of concept of the public intellectual was really starting to brew up. It's actually funny now because that concept has kind of gotten devalued because Twitter made everybody believe they were the public intellectual, and now we can't tell you know, the real from the fake on there, right? There's a lot of people with PhDs who want to be stars. But I had kind of looked around and I had already been writing by this point and I had figured out I was like, OK, there's nobody in this public intellectual space who is an economist. And that's a very important thing. And, and, and when you say you got a degree in economics, people perk up in a different way than if you say sociology or political science or anything like that, for whatever reason. So I was like, oh, OK, that was what my groove was. And let me tell you something. Saying that you want a Ph.D., because You Want to Be a Writer is some of the most ass backwards shit that anybody has ever come up with in the history of the world. It made perfect sense at the time. It was really, really dumb because you got to be super invested in that PhD game if that's what you want to do. Like, that's the hardest work I've ever done or the hardest work that I'll ever do. But that was my thing is that I was like, cool, I'll be able to take some of these high-minded intellectual concepts and bring them back to the folks, right? Because I've been writing about music and doing columns about like politics and life and all of that stuff. I had been doing those things. And so I was like, yeah, this PhD will bolster me, A, get you a steady little day job that'll always pay, right? Teaching, you always have a little something to anchor. And then you can go around and do this other stuff, try to get on that Cornell West, Michael Eric Dyson life. That was what the idea was at the time.
1: So your your parents are both professors. So what was growing up with that like in that academic kind of
2: household <laughs> yeah you know the thing is I never really noticed that as anything that was like I don't want to say noteworthy or different until maybe like when I got to high school is when I started to notice that and I noticed it because the white people were jealous of the idea that my parents were professors right because I didn't like relative to the people I went to school with you would say that we had money but I would definitely tell you that we weren't rich by any stretch and my my people are minimalist. So it's not like he was out here flossing getting all this stuff. Like I'm like, why y'all got a Nintendo and I don't? Right? You wearing a shirt your brother had on yesterday, but you got all the games and I ain't got none. You know what I mean? Like it was like like it was it was that sort of thing. So like I didn't really notice it as a thing. And also in part because like after school every day, I'm going to hang out on campus. So I'm like, that's just the world that I'm in. And there are other people that are two professors who are parents and then they have kids and then you see them, you know. The other part of it is I think that people, when they hear like the idea of the professor, they get kind of this sort of a hoity-toity thing and think that is, you know, we're going to have study time around the fire and all this, like your dad walks in the house with a tweed jacket on and all of this stuff. No, nah, my parents are really just kind of people Where where it was interesting for me. And I think the difference between me and most of the people that I grew up around was my parents are older and my siblings are older. So my nearest sibling is 10 years older than me. And so that meant, and, and I went to school like 20-something miles away from where I live. So my friends from school, I'm not hanging out with them after school or around the corner, right? I'm hanging out with my parents and their professor friends, right? So like the TV's on, they're watching the mcneil Lehrer News Hour. I'm right there watching it with them. Like I had access to a level of conversation and was lucky enough to be able to follow. But I had the advantage in the professor thing really is in, in exposure, but it's a different kind of exposure because my dad's a bit of a radical sort who knows radical people, and so I met th- like those cats, like those those sorts of dudes that that did some real things at real points in the name of the the struggle for uh, African American liberation. Those are the cats that I got to meet because of my father being the person that who he was, or you know some of the people that I'd meet because they knew my mom. You know, so like I remember once. I saw Julianne Malvo on television once when I was very young. And my mom was like, oh, yeah, that's my friend. Like, it's those kinds of things that happen and come up. And that's, that's, that's where having the parents that I had was different. But I think in terms of, like, being parents, they're just parents, right? I'm still playing basketball in the driveway with my pops and all that stuff. It, I, don't, I don't think any of that stuff is terribly dissimilar. Because in the end, they are not terribly dissimilar.
1: Most sports journalists, they don't come the way that you came. I mean, you, you came, you were going on an academic path. You ventured into writing first through music writing, um, and I definitely, I do want some of your musical opinions, which I'll get to uh, shortly, and then you find yourself working at ESPN and then sports radio, so you came through a very non-traditional path. So when younger journalists ask you, and I know they ask you all the time, how do I get to where you are? How do I become Bomani Jones? What do you tell them?
2: I have no idea. That is what I tell them. (laughs)
1: I'm glad it's not just you cuz I tell them the same thing. I'm like, I don't know. No, I
2: have <laughs> no idea. The game has changed so much that like the the means of entry that I was able to get on, I don't really know exactly how that works anymore for people are trying to get into this cuz I like I always feel like I got lucky in some different ways like in terms of timing of when I got in or decided to do some things. Like I got out of college, it was right before 9/11 so the economy wasn't great, but I was able to get things going before like 08 when everything changed in terms of just employment and everything else. And like what the fortunes were for people who were coming out of school, like I got in just in time. And so now I look around and there's so many people who are trying to enter the field. And honestly, it's probably easier than ever to get like some measure of access to try to get on. But when people tell me, how do you get to the place to where I am? You're not going to be able to do it like I did. Like, I just I just don't think those doors are really open. Like, I'm not sure anymore that Ralph Wiley can make an acquaintance over email with me over a year and then pull the code of the editor at page two and be like, hey, this guy ought to write something for you and then go from there. Part of that, to me, that I think is interesting is that page two, I felt like really ushered in and opened the door for kind of that blog era of journalism that opened it up for a lot of people from non-traditional backgrounds. But what they were able to do was use whatever their expertise was and put it to work. Like a lot of lawyers got in. The logic and the thought process is important. And we was doing a lot of stories about people getting locked up and going to jail and getting sued and shit. Like when we was doing all that, the lawyers all walked in the game. But that economy doesn't really exist anymore. So like if you want to get in in this game and get paid, if you're not going through a traditional like go to school track. I don't really know how you do it. Like it still feels in a lot of ways, even if it's more working at websites now than the newspaper, but the best way to get in the game still seems to be to try to get an internship at a newspaper and learn how to do some stuff. Because one thing that does worry me is that people ask me how to get to where I am, but they ask it for like moves as opposed to like, how do I get better at my job? Because the one thing I have found in all of this, if you are good at your job, you will get on. Right. If you try to hustle it, you will get around, and at some point, wind up being exposed. But the, the best thing you could really do is find something and be good at it.
1: Yeah, um, it's interesting that you say that. And I guess for the audience listening who is not familiar with Page Two, so Page Two was this sort of subgenre. It wasn't a separate site, but it was a part of ESPN.com. That's how I came through ESPN as well, as writing for Page Two, which was supposed to be this um, sort of place for it with a different kind of diversity in thought they had you they had me they had bill simmons they had hunter s thompson like a whole bunch of different type of people who were not necessarily traditional journalists ralph wiley who you mentioned and by the way that was one of the things i discovered i didn't realize that ralph wiley about you i didn't realize ralph wiley walked you through that door ralph wiley who at least on my mount rushmore of great sports writers uh and columnists is on there and he wrote for sports illustrated wrote for espn.com first black person i saw on the sports reporters how did that relationship with you and Ralph Wiley
2: develop a buddy of mine met him at a book signing and I had just written something I was very proud of at the time I want to say this is 2002 and my buddy gave it to him and Ralph applied and I may be getting it wrong I used to know a word for word but he said you tell Bomani if he keeps writing exceptional shit like that he's going to be dangerous and I was like can you ask him if I can send him an email and I just sent emails all the time. I sent emails about what was going on in the world. I sent emails with my work. I sent emails about his. Like I just I made that man be my friend. Like I just decided, and he told me that he was becoming a fan of my work, which honestly that was the thing that powered me through a whole bunch of stuff. Like, yeah, this one dude say I ain't got nothing going. Ralph Wiley says he's a fan. I ain't worried too much really about what this other cat is saying. <laughs> and so yeah, I don't think I ever I never got to meet him face to face, but it was just a, just a lot of email. And what happened was one day there was some story that had come down to Pike. And I remember he had emailed it to me because I remember I was CC with Michael Wilbot. And that was just like a wild idea to me that I'd be CC with Michael Wilbot. And I replied to him and I said, Well, look, if you want to do something on the story, I know some people that might know some things that can help you out. And then the next day I got an email from a gentleman named Michael Nisley that said, Hey, Ralph says you can write this. And <laughs> I'm like, Oh, okay. I mean, I guess I can, but that, that was not how I thought this was going to wind up going.
1: Uh, Michael Nisley, who was was my editor as well, who we both worked with, uh, a really good line editor. I really enjoy working with him. You know, so once you started kind of really making a name for yourself, cutting your way into it, like in your mind, as you first started to be successful, what did you think success would look like for you?
2: I don't know if I ever had a real answer to like what would success look like. Like I remember when I was in college and I was freelancing. And I started making money pretty quick, not a lot of money, but at the very least, just money, like a couple hundred dollars here, $300 there, which, you know, is not necessarily how the game works when you first get started. And I remember it was the end of the year 2000, and I was emailing with another guy that I had made the acquaintance with, you know, through this site, africana.com, that we both wrote for. And he was so excited because he had just, you know, done everything up for his taxes. And he had made ten thousand dollars that year freelancing, and I said, "What? I I was under a drastic misunderstanding of what kind of life people were living um, off of their freelance writing. Like he was really jazzed up about these ten G's, and not that I thought that I was gonna be making one fifty, but I ain't think that ten was gonna be nothing that made me happy. Like that was like, oh, whoa, whoa, okay." So, like, I never really had the thought that there would be like a lot of money involved with any of this stuff. I think respect was probably the thing that I probably envisioned the most because the thing that I always appreciated, even, you know, it was a lot better like 20 years ago with the email game because you really only got emails from thoughtful people. Now, anybody can just fire off from you from their pocket and just say the craziest stuff they ever considered. But I really feel like for me, success was really going to be earning the respect of my peers because I'd never looked at this as like a field or a line of work where you just made a lot of money. That wasn't it. I didn't think of it as a place where you wound up like getting any measure of fame. And I never really was aiming or trying to be on television. I think that one was probably the game changer that I didn't see coming was winding up on television. So
1: I guess thinking about how you thought about things then in terms of success, how do you view success now?
2: The biggest thing that you can do in this game, and you got to make some trades along the way, but when you get to the point that you ain't got to do anything that you don't want to do, I think that you have achieved what is probably the pinnacle of success in what this is. Because I've done this long enough and been around enough people and lived enough to know that the money is not going to make you happy. That's just not how the happy thing works. It can make you more comfortable. It can definitely get you out of a lot of jams. But in terms of actual happiness, right? Like one thing doing sports will do is... Give you access to a lot of really rich, unhappy people. And you see that and you realize it. But I had to make a contract decision a few years ago. And it was tricky because one of them was never have to work again if I do this. And the other one was never have to do anything I don't want to do again. And never have to do anything I don't want to do again. That one worked like That was honestly more than good enough and more than satisfying. And I think that's the biggest win that anybody can get to. Like I think about you watch movies like the Sharknado and stuff like that. When you see people that used to be really famous in terrible movies and you're like, damn, they can't afford to quit. Right. Like like that's the only reason that you are out here besmirching your name and reputation being in these terrible films is because, man, you had bet on a future that never quite came around. Nah, 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 nah. I don't ever want to have to look at something and honestly say. Now, I did this for the money because I'm probably going to do a few of those, but I had to do this for the money. Now, once you get out of that space, I feel like you won.
1: Yeah, I tell um, people this now all the time is that the biggest difference now between where my career is today versus where it is five years ago or seven years ago or 10 years ago is that every job I have is a job I want and not a job I need. That is priceless in terms of mentally how you approach things it's priceless in terms of your creativity and your freedom. Uh, Because it's a whole lot different when you have to go to work and you got to sit around and talk to people that you don't really want to talk to, engage, and you have to get your creativity rubber stamped by other people that you don't really fuck with like that. Like, that's the worst. And so I was like, I'm never putting myself in that position
2: again. Especially if you got to literally put your face on it. Every now and then, like, I forget what movie it was. I saw an interview once. somebody was asking Jamie Foxx about it, and it was bad. And he was just like, yo, I did this for the money. It
1: was held up. It was the movie held up.
2: I think so, right? And, you, and look, man, if you're in that world, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. But I'm like, damn, but your face is on this, right? People go remember Norbit as long as they remember coming to America, you know? Like, that's a rough go that I wouldn't want no parts of. And so, like, I look at it now, like, I've been doing, you know, the show on HBO. And I'm like, I'm good if I never do television again. Like, I'm fine. I can't think of what the thing is that'll be the challenge after this that would really like light me up because I don't necessarily need to be the person out front. But for those people that need to be the person out front and they got to take jobs they don't want, yikes, man. Like, that's got to stink. People clowning you for it, you know, like, damn, man, that's all bad.
1: Yeah, it is. I'm glad you said that. I'm going to pick that up. But we're going to take a quick break because I I did hear you on another interview say that if Game Theory, uh, your current series on HBO, was was it that you would be good? So we're gonna pick up that part of what you said on the other side of the break. We'll be back with more with Bomani Jones. So I'm kind of just getting my sea legs back up underneath me, as they say, because I spent close to 10 days in India with my husband who had a work assignment there. And I got stories to tell about this trip. Now, first, India is an overwhelming country. So if you go there, you should have a game plan before you touch down. It's not the kind of place where you just want to stumble into some shit every day. You need an itinerary. Our itinerary included hitting the Golden Triangle, which is New Delhi, where we were mostly based, Agra, where the Taj Mahal is, and Jaipur, another wonderful city with lots of cultural touchstones and very cool historical sites. Now, the great thing about India is that while it might be an expensive plane ticket, it's so inexpensive once you get there. The food, the drinks, the accommodations. You can get a suite at a good four-star name brand hotel for less than $150 a night. And I'm being pretty generous there. You also can do some serious shopping. My husband got four custom-made suits for between $230 and $250 each. We flew from Jaipur to Delhi for $58 each. And we got those airline tickets the night before we left. You can ride on one of India's bullet trains to go to other cities for less than $15 each way. Your money goes a long way in India. Now, the first three days, we had a very aggressive schedule visiting the Golden Triangle. We not only did the Taj Mahal, but Amber Ford, baby Taj Mahal. Yes, there is a baby. And we saw, I felt like every historical site possible. In Agra, though, we stayed at a Marriott-branded hotel called the ITC Mughal. Nice looking hotel, secure. One problem, though. We went to dinner one night and there was a halfway dead roach on the floor in one of the hotel restaurants. And I don't mean where people couldn't see it. I meant everybody could see it, <laughs> okay? And uh, it was especially off-putting when one of the waiters just stepped over the roach. did he pick it up. Just let it lay there, nasty-ass little roach arms and legs just dangling as it was fighting for his life. I, I, maybe they just wanted to do the humane thing and let it just die naturally, but that shit was gross. Minor snag, though, just a minor snag. But the sights were lovely. Another thing you have to adjust to is that this is a country that has over a billion people. Delhi has about 30 million people. So you have to get accustomed to the traffic and it just being people everywhere. Now, driving is an adventure because they don't really believe in stopping signals or non-aggressive lane changes. They also constantly beep their horns. It's not a sign of disrespect there. If you're going too slow or in the way, they are hitting their horns repeatedly. If you get in a tuk-tuk, say a prayer. It's fun, but the pedestrians walk around in front of cars and tuk-tuks like they're made of vibranium. It's wild. A couple of the highlights of the trip. Food is spectacular, but Deli Belly, basically Indians version of Montezuma's Revenge, a.k.a. when It goes down good, but how it comes out may not be so good and you may be on that toilet for a while. That shit is real. And my husband got a little touch of it and he messed around and just ate Cheez-Its for two days. Me, I drank water out of hose as a kid and chewed Flintstone vitamins. So I was straight and I love spicy food. So India was perfect for my palate. Also, shout out to this place in Delhi called the Beer Cafe. My husband is in good shape and a muscular guy. And I'm pretty sure the entire wait staff at the Beer Cafe thought he was Vin Diesel or The Rock because they took 50, 11 pitches with him like he was a real celebrity. And that's something that's honestly, all jokes aside, kind of common in India because people there can tell you're Americans. This just in. Also, a lot of the Indian girls and women kept staring at my hair because of the blonde. Or maybe it was a combination of me being black and the blonde, but they wouldn't do a polite stare either. It would be a full on come to a complete stop and just stare. And no, thankfully, no one touched it, but they asked me about it a lot. Anyway, on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the highest compliment, I would give India a solid eight I came back with a new comforter, custom-made, new rug, also custom-made, a bunch of different figurines and trinkets, some spices, all kinds of shit. Now ask me, did I get anything for someone other than myself? And now back to more with Bomani Jones. I have to say, Bo, um, this is where we ended the first half of the conversation. I was really shocked when I saw you say that in another interview, that you said that if Game Theory was it, that you would be, you know, happy if this was the last TV job that you had. And I was surprised. So why don't you elaborate on that? Like, why do you think that about this particular project?
2: So for the first, let's call it 12 years of my television existence, right? And I would count when I started doing Around the Horn, which is in the fall of 2010, to when I started doing Game Theory, which is in March of 2022. So we'll call it, you know, 12, just for the sake of. I sit down, you'd ask me my opinion about something, I give you back my opinion. That's how it goes, right? It was a relatively easy sort of television life because I can just do that naturally. Like, that's not hard for me. And most of the shows that I worked on, like Highly Questionable in particular, was just built where all I had to do was walk in there, sit down for an hour, do my thing, and then leave. Like, that that was all I had to do. And I'm pretty good at that. And maybe I could get better at that, but for what, right? Like, what do I still find a challenge in doing that sort of television? No, not really. Not at this point. And so what I'm doing with Game Theory and where it became so much different was I had to start like flexing and using creative muscles that I hadn't had to use on my own work in a while. Like, they're like, yo, this show has to be your show. It has to be the show that you want it to be. And I'm like, I don't know what I want this show to be. Y'all call me. I didn't pitch you a show. So it's like, damn, I mean, thank you. Appreciate you. Glad for the chance. But now I got to come up with what a show is. And so I kind of did. And I got a team of people that I really like working with. And I like the challenge of like, for lack of a better term, being in charge. You know, like I'm not the dictator or anything on this. And there are plenty of other voices that come in. But I like being the person that comes up with the vision of things and then Puts it to everybody. That how are we going to make this happen? What do, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Okay, cool. Well, we're going to do this, right? I really like being in that space, and it's allowing me now to take what I was doing before and expand it and make it a deeper and make it a bit richer and just create a much more. It's a much more creative project than it had been before, and we have room and opportunity to do so many more things. And so, let's say that this show doesn't come is is done. Okay, what am I supposed to do after that? like, am I supposed to go back to just kind of offering opinions in short form in quick bursts on television? That doesn't really excite me. Well, what other television is there that maybe I could do? Like, okay, so maybe at some point I could go to one of these news outlets and do those shows. But when I hear that, at least at this moment in time, I don't know how excited I am about that. Because part of it is I don't get off on being on television. I don't get off on the idea of people knowing who I am. So it's not like I need to be back out there. I need you guys to see my face. I would love for you guys to forget my face actually, would probably make my life a little bit more convenient. And so if I left from that to the production space and coming up with ideas, like I, I enjoy watching these things come together now. And if you were to ask me after this, what do I think would sound more challenging being the person out front or being the person that puts it all together? I would probably say being the person that puts it all together. Now, that, that feeling may change. You know, I may mess around and, you know, have a bad weekend in Vegas or something, and I need to bread and you got to go about it different or whatever. Yeah, maybe that's it. But I think if I had gotten into this because I wanted to be on television, I would view it differently. But that was never the goal for me. I just kind of wound up in this space.
1: Yeah. And in that way, we're very similar because I just I never wanted to be on TV. I just wound up in the, in this space. And you're right. As something you said a little bit earlier, there's a very big difference between people who may have accidentally become TV stars, as you have, and the people who like really want to be on TV every day because I'm just not pressed to do it. And since leaving ESPN and the grind of doing SportsCenter, i it has been very few things I have wanted to actually put my name on. Obviously, the work that I did with Carrie was great. I was like, oh, I get to kick it with my girl every day on TV or once a week, I should say, because I don't know if I can ever go back to that everyday TV life. I shouldn't say that aloud loud because you realize when you leave, you're like, I used to do that shit every day. Like, what the fuck was wrong with me?
2: <laughs> I used to do everyday TV and three hours of radio. And when I stopped doing radio, that was the one where I was like, man, I have no idea how I did this every single day. I had no idea. And the daily TV grind, especially because SportsCenter required you to be a lot more hands on than the shows that I did every day required me to be. High Noon was a little bit more of that. It just kind of gets to the, okay. I guess it's particularly in sports because we ain't got but that much to talk about that anybody cares about, like at least over there in the news world, like you might be talking about the Ukraine for a week, but at least it's a week's worth of stuff to talk about.
1: Yeah, it's like, what do you do when it's like July and you're like, okay, ain't shit happening, but we just going to make up something that there is manufacture something
2: yeah you cross your fingers and you hope somebody goes to jail <laughs> that's what you do in july <laughs> july is like july is the and, they, and that's when them cats would always go to jail ain't nobody got nothing to do somebody wind up going to jail all right cool well now we can talk about your dumb ass going to jail how about that like that's that's where we'd wind up and now like i like with the new job being able to go deeper into stuff Right, being able to take time and care on something, which I've never really had the luxury of option of doing, really at any point in my career prior to this, right? Like I'm working as a columnist, man. You turn them things around. That thing happened yesterday. Okay, cool. We turning this around. Like it was very rare that I had something that I would sit on for an extended period of time and be able to work on. And I kind of enjoy being able to do that as opposed to just having to rattle this off every single day, no matter what the context is. Being able to sit with something like when we do these essays on HBO, man, those long essays you see at the end. Those are months in the making. Literally months goes in to getting everything right on those. And I kind of like being able to have months to do stuff.
1: Yeah. The one thing um, because I've watched every single episode of the show, I think it's great. I think it's so you on top of that. And so the you know, as somebody who obviously also does television, I can tell and I'm I'm like, oh, his team, I, I remember uh, one day I just paused on the credits and I was like, this motherfucker really got about 10 writers on his show. <laughs> I, was, I was so I was so excited for you and jealous at the same time. Like one day I'm going to get to that mountaintop where I can get like a whole staff. because sometimes, and look, it, it's not the most polite thing to say. And certainly, you know, you don't want to, you know, throw shots at the people working on you because you respect them. But. In a lot of TV situations, as you know, you wind up being the smartest person in the room. You know, like you do. And you're like, what situation? Now, granted, you came from a different show group than I did, all right? Because you work with with different people at ESPN. And that's not to bash any of my former colleagues. But a lot of times in these TV spaces, you don't really have a team that matches what you're bringing in terms of like the creativity, the thought, all of that. And I'm looking at your show like he finally got it. Yeah. He got It looks like at least the product I see. It looks like you have the perfect match of your incredible ability with the perfect team. And that has got to feel
2: pretty amazing. No, I work with really talented people. And it's not just that they're really talented, but keeping in mind that I'm the newbie in this space. Like, I don't know how to make this kind of television. Like, I had to learn all their little lingo. Like, you know, you watch The Wire and The Wire never explains the slang. Like, that was basically the first year for me when they talk about we're going to game this, the beats of this and everything. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm just kind of doing the math on where it goes. But like I remember the first meeting that we had after the offices opened before season one. Came in, did the all hands. I had to come up with some rah-rah shit to get everybody charged up. I ain't got no idea how to do that. I forget what I came up with. But after that, we had a meeting for what would become uh, the Duke Museum from the first episode of the show.
1: Which is brilliant, by the way. Brilliant.
2: That's what I realized what was possible. So what had happened was I'd had a meeting with an executive from HBO. And she was like, look, I'm not hearing enough about the ideas for the show. What are we going to do content wise? And I was like, well, look, our first episode is Selection Sunday. What if we did an essay about Mike Krzyzewski? He's really famous across, you know, in sports, out sports, all of this. And I was like, I stopped and thought about what to do. And I was like, well, what are we going to talk about? Because like, why is it that black people have all this atmosphere toward Duke? And I was like, oh, they beat all our heroes. Like I really hadn't stopped and done the math on it, but these white boys came out here and beat all our heroes. And so I'm talking to James Davis, uh, one of my executive producers, one of my very good friends. He's like my little brother. I've known him for 20 something years and he's working with me on this show. And I remember I said that to him and his response was, what if we did a museum, I mean, an exhibit at a black history museum? about how Mike Krzyzewski and Duke have terrorized Black America. And that was all it took. That, that sentence right there. Next thing I know, it's a couple months later or a month later, and I'm in a meeting, and my field producer, Ted Trumper is on Zoom, and they're, he's Zooming in. They're projecting onto the wall the specs for the room and the designs of, okay, we're going to go this way in this room because we got the Schaumburg Center in Harlem to let us use their space. We're going to go here. We're going to put this stuff on the walls, put like like this many feet by this many feet and everything else. And they put it all together. And I'll tell the story a lot because it was so funny because everybody is the first time ever that a meeting cared about what I thought. And so everybody's in there trying to see if I like it, but it's COVID. So I got a mask on so nobody can tell. And I'm sitting in there like, I got this big old grin on my face because I can't believe that you could start with a sentence and throw that in front of people and give it to a room full of folks. And then next thing you know, we're getting pitches in. And somebody's like, what if there's a wall of unimpressive whites? What if there's this? What if there's that? What if there's a jar of white tears? Like, like our black tears for Duke Breaking Our Hearts. Like there was all there were all kinds of other things in that exhibit that like people didn't see. And the idea that really we could start with a sentence and then throw that out to people and then they throw it back was just bananas to me. Like right now. We got people in Salt Lake City working on getting something together about the irony of the all-star game being played in the whitest place on earth, right?
1: Oh my God. I'm already laughing, thinking about it.
2: <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying. I can throw that out there to people. And we put folks on the planes with cameras. And I ain't got to be like, do this, do this, do that. They come to me. Well, this is what we're thinking. I come back and say, all right, well, adjust this, adjust this. Hey, I don't really like that. And hey, let's go in a different direction. Okay, cool. And then they come back with stuff. And like, these, I mean- Really creative, inventive things that this really diverse staff of people is able to come up with. And that's what's wild to me. Like, I walk in with the essays and I'm like, this is what I want to say. This is how I want to say it, which for the writers, they tell me makes their lives so much easier because they don't have to ascribe a point of view onto their talent. It's already there for. So, boom, I give them that. But then they come with the jokes or they come with what about this or they come with this. And I always say about this show that the best part is I will no longer be doing shows that are limited by my own brain. And as much as I think a lot of people hear that and they think to themselves, but your brain is da da da, but it ain't it ain't everything. Somebody sees even if it's the, a little thing. Somebody sees something, somebody's got a question, somebody's got the vantage that can take this thing to the next level. And so, you know, that to me is really the best part is that it's a really strong and talented team with a lot of people who are doing this because they wanted to work with me. And because they want to see this vehicle be successful in large part because it is my vehicle. That is like one of the more humbling and coolest things about this is that I'm the person that's going to be out front getting all the credit for it. And they still proud about the fact that that is like when that happens, they proud about it. Like that's what I hope for in this at least.
1: Damn, dude, that you just dropped a, a fucking bomb right there. Because, I mean, that was, I felt that so many times where you're in various situations in TV and you're like, we can only go as far as I can think it. And if that's the case, like, you know, I like to think that I'm a pretty smart person, but if that's the limitation, that's too limiting even for me, even the inside of my brain. I want to ask you though, because you just said it a minute ago, this is a different kind of show that you've never done before. We've seen a lot of, you know, Black men in particular be in this space of like that late night space. You've seen Chris Rock do it. We've seen Dave Chappelle do it. A lot of different people. Your name's on the marquee. You got this kind of show. You got all the resources, the most creative team. So, what does this moment for you feel like versus other projects that you've started? Knowing is there pressure there? Like, how are you internalizing all that is happening in your career right now?
2: Yo, it's interesting because, like, I talked about that page two job. And I aimed for it, and then it didn't work. When I got it right, I got stuff I stumbled into, like those radio gigs. And even though they like, kind of got fi- you know, the, the the firing and station sales or anything, those things were unquestionably successful when I did them. I didn't really aim for highly questionable. I just wound up there, and that was very successful. I aimed for high noon. That didn't really work out. This one, however, was. The dream, like I can go back to 2010 or 2011 in the HBO offices with Ken Hirschman, who was then the guy in charge at HBO Sports, and I'm listening to him say what I'm looking for. What I'd love to find is a sports Bill Maher, and I look at him and say, "You're not going to believe me because of who the person is that's telling you, but I'm telling you right now, you're looking for sports Bill Maher, and I'm sitting right in front of." I don't blame you if you don't believe me when I say this. That's fine. It makes perfect sense, but I'm telling you right now. If that's what you're looking for, I'm right here. And I met with him a year later and I said the same thing and he just kind of laughed it off. But this was the thing that I, something like this was what I always wanted to do. And so I remember after the first episode of High Noon, I was caught off guard because we did the show. And then after we got done and they said it's rap, everybody started clapping and I started crying. And it was in part because when I went to Miami, I signed a four-year contract when I went to Miami, and I had no plan to be there longer than four years. Like that was my thing: is that by this, after this, I should be able to be in a place and have my own vehicle or something that's closer to being my own vehicle. And High Noon was that. This one I remember after the first episode, which was different because we didn't have a studio audience, which was good because it kind of like kept everything a bit more level or whatever. And I'm just there with all the people that I've been working on the show with. And I don't feel pressure about like recording shows and stuff like that. It's just talking to a camera for me. That's not the biggest deal in the world. But I remember we get done and they got a cake in the next room and they got the champagne and everything else. And I was with my agent and I gave my agent a hug and it was for like the two of us, right? Like This was really like the culmination of a decade of us working together and knowing that this was the kind of thing that we wanted to do that. It was, it was such a feeling of accomplishment for just getting there. And that's before we start putting all the other stuff in there. Because we was in there, uh, me and James were talking about this, thinking about like black late night hosts. And when you say there's been a lot of people who've done it, kind of, right? Like on HBO, I know my man Wyatt uh, Snack had problem areas, but that's a different kind of show than this show is. Like We really couldn't think back anybody since Chris Rock that it had, that had been black and had a late night show like this on HBO. And that I really hadn't thought about until we really started walking it back and like no this is something that i'll be able to say and talk about for a very long time like and this is like this matters like i it's not going to be a black history month trivia question or anything like that like we're not going to remember this every february but there are going to be some people who see this show and say to themselves down the line i want to do something like that Right? It may only be five people, but if five people look at what you do and say, this is, I want to do something like that, you were you probably in a pretty advantageous position. And that's really where I feel like we are with this show, where we can do something and we are doing something that really hasn't been done before in the ways that it's being done. And certainly not with like my black ass, like somebody like me. Like that's a, you know, like, like it's, it's, it's some, I made a decision when ESPN let me go in 07 that I'm never going to get back espn so i would i came up with my approach to how i wanted to do programming as not espn not as a rejection of it but like why would i give you what they got over there i'm gonna just give you what this is and then wound up being able to bring that to espn and not have to change it while i was there like it wasn't like okay now i'm here i got to get down with their get down no i brought the same exact get down over there maybe cussing a little bit less but i brought the same exact get down over there And now to be able to bring that get down to HBO and expand upon it, but also not feel like I've been held down for all these years and now finally I can let loose. No, I just got different tools now. As far as black people in this industry get treated, I've been treated like pretty well in terms of being put in positions where people, at the very least, demonstrate some respect for what my talent is or people who like think that I can be special. Like there's certainly been places where I would have complaints and where I would push back on folks, but I know that. When this show isn't there anymore, because one day it won't be, the likelihood that it'll be a black person getting the next one ain't that high. So this
1: is going to sound like a bit of a crazy question, but I hope you can follow where, where I'm, I'm going with it. When we were at ESPN, you, as you know, I've been suspended. I've gotten into my trouble uh, a time or two. Stephen A's gotten into trouble. A whole host of people at ESPN have gotten in trouble. You know who hasn't gotten into trouble? Yo ass has never gotten into trouble. <laughs> Not once. Not one time, right? Now, You're somebody who, we may say things differently, but I consider us to be very like-minded. So Bo, what the fuck am I doing wrong? And you clearly are doing right (laughs) because... but But you managed to have the edgy opinion... But you don't get the same fucking smoke as in like that higher up smoke. That's a different kind of smoke. You get you might get smoke from the public, but you don't get that. You got to sit in the penalty box smoke.
2: <laughs> yeah, I get bot smoke. I don't, let me tell you a story that I don't think I've ever told you. And it's been long enough now that I feel comfortable that I can tell this in public. So when you got the 2017 suspension, I called John Skipper. And my approach on this is because I'm better at tact than people would think, right? And so my approach was, I wanted an explanation because I didn't think that there had been an explanation. I wanted an explanation. And the way that I positioned the question to him for this explanation was, I need to know what exactly it is that Jamel did that merited punishment so that I can make sure that I don't do the same thing. Which, by the way, was a worthwhile reason to ask that question. Oh, very much so. You know, like I need to know what exactly the problem is here or whatever's going down. And John Skipper's response to me was, and I quote, I don't have to worry about you saying anything like that. (laughs) That would be true. I I had a meeting with him like two years before, and he remarked on my ability to be provocative without getting into the trouble. I have a hard time explaining exactly how it works, but I know the things you can and cannot say and what trips off the outrage meter because I got terrified. I changed my whole get down online after you and the white supremacist thing. And the reason was I was looking at the responses you were getting and I'm like, yo, this is very organized. This is very orchestrated. And most of these people aren't real. And when I saw that and I realized that everything that swirled around, it was not about like the foundation the fundamentals of what you said, but it was just about the reaction and that the reaction could be manufactured. I was like, I'm out because I mean, you, know, you guys know how I used to get down on Twitter. It's been done for like five years at this point. Because I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I see what's going on here. And this is terrifying. I, I don't know how this winds up going. I try to get into spaces that are inarguable and present as many things as I can as questions that require people to say what the answer is and then wind up going from there. But the other one is honestly, and this is a very big thing, an Eric Rideholm thing that I think I'd concluded myself, but he put it clearest describe actions, not people. Someone has done something that is racist. The person is not racist. One thing I definitely figured out too, there is nothing to gain from calling somebody a racist in the public space because it doesn't matter whether or not they are or are not a racist. That part doesn't matter, right? Whether you say they are racist, all of a sudden it turns into a referendum of, is this person a racist, right? Like, ah, oh, that, that fight, that winds up not being worth it. I know a bad fight when I see one. If I got to think twice, I don't do it once. That's become my rule on these things. I almost got suspended one time, and it was a really unfortunate break where I was being harassed around a certain issue of the time. It was one city and a lot of media people in the one city that were really bringing it to me all the time. May have concluded that that could get them business. Okay, cool. And I sent a tweet that said, I'm really getting tired of these people talking crazy to me hiding behind pictures of their ugly children (laughs) because that was a fairly common occurrence at that time that people would send me these things behind pictures of their ugly children. It just so happened that at the same time I was saying that one of these people was breaking bad with me with a picture of his child who had a developmental disability.
1: Oh, oh, that's not good.
2: That's a bad break. That was a bad break. There was no way that I was going to be able to explain it away, right? But that was a bad break. All right. So, what I did though, immediately after I realized what had happened, I shut down all my stuff. I didn't pull it offline. I just didn't get back online. I called bosses and I was like, hey, I'm gonna let you get ahead of this. This may turn into a thing. I was like, if y'all gotta sit me down, you gotta sit me down. I get it, whatever it is. But I was like, I let them know we are in this together. I have made the mistake and I will do what it takes to get us out of this. And then I slept that night. I woke up. Nothing ever came of it. I just went all back about my business.
1: I see there was clearly so many conversations I should have had with you before I sent certain <laughs> tweets.
2: <laughs> nah, man. What I always observed on that, I was watching. I was like, oh, man, Carter Slipping. Hey, Carter Slipping. I would just, I would, my response is just to say something about your mama. That that probably kept me out of a lot of the trouble. i just say something about their mamas and keep, and that was the thing. I could make all these references to having sex with these people's mothers that never offended anybody's sensibilities. Never did. Never did. <laughs> Not one
1: time. Nope. It, it was so funny is like I, I think the most controversial, if you want to call it, call it that, and I put that in air quotes, was when you wore the Caucasians t-shirt on Mike and Mike. I think that might have been the most that I ever saw you on
2: that. <laughs> And even that wasn't actually controversial. No, it wasn't. I look back on that day and everything else. People like, oh, man. People were so mad at you. No, they weren't. Like I'm telling you, there's never been, I never received an onslaught of people being angry. That's why nobody, I think Dave Roberts talked to me that day very quickly. I never got a phone call. I never got a lecture. My agent got a few calls like down the line because nobody knew what to say to me. People felt like I did something wrong. They felt like I was being mischievous. It just didn't feel right, but nobody could explain it. So nobody ever said a thing to me about it because What did I do wrong? Nobody had an answer. I wasn't even thinking about it that deep. Why? Because I knew there was nothing wrong. I just didn't think it was a big deal. It was a huge deal. It was a giant deal. I did not think it was a big deal.
1: You were trending, and I guess to give people a little backstory, I mean, obviously we know that there are certain teams in sports who have names that would be slurs to indigenous people. So Bo wore a t-shirt that said Caucasians as if it were a mascot. Caucasians, not a slur. It is an actual term. So
2: that's my thing. Like, there's nothing. They were so mad they at occasions so if they were mad. Right. If they were mad. Nobody, like, I think at ESPN, there were people like, he knew he was pulling a fast one. Right. And I know why that would make you mad. I really did not think I was pulling a fast one. But again, I would understand why you might feel that way under those circumstances. But it was wild. Because it was on Mike and Mike, and Mike and Mike is on from six to ten in the morning. And so it was after like the second break, a producer was like, Everybody's talking about Bomani's shirt. So there had to be this thing where we stopped and we talked about the shirt, and they asked me to zip the shirt, to zip up my hoodie over the shirt, which I did not think was as problematic as other people did. If their point was this is distracting from the rest of the show, then yes, I have to do that. That's just what it is. They're like, You made your point. I wasn't even trying to make a point, man. Ha ha, the shirt was funny. That's all I was trying to do. Man, man, man. I will admit, though, I got the hell out of Dodge. Like After after the show was over, I snuck into Dave Roberts' office and said something right fast. And then I was like, I'd like to go to the airport now. (laughs) 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 But what I do remember is it was a Thursday in April because the people that were kind of mad, they quickly pivoted from being mad about the shirt to making sure I didn't say anything about Augusta National because it was the first day of the Masters. That was the biggest concern was he's not going to get out here talking wild about Augusta, is he? Which was a totally fair concern. But I knew better than that. <laughs>
1: Again, you you have found the perfect balance. OK, um, before I get to a game I play with every guest, I want to ask you, because one of the first times I saw you on TV was you were part of a was it a Michael Jackson documentary? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you wrote about music for quite some time. So, what are your thoughts? We're recording this the day after the Grammys, and Beyonce once again did not win Album of the Year. What are your thoughts on
2: that? Hey, man, do we care about the Grammys or don't we care about the Grammys? Do we care about these people's validation or do we not care about these people's validation? If you want to put together a list of all the people who have won Album of the Year, and then put the list of all the people who haven't won album of the year, you're going to find that list number two is more jamming than list number one is. This is just how it goes. It's a big old voting block. They had like 10 nominees for album of the year. And so they're in all these different places. So you got the Kendrick Lamar, you got the Beyonce. um, I know they had Lizzo. I felt like there was another black person that was on that list. But them votes going to be split amongst. Right? Like Lizzo's going a little bit more in the other direction in terms of like who is who is geared toward. But chances are Beyonce was not gonna win that one. She has won the most Grammys out of anybody else. Y'all can't be happy with that. Oh no, no, no. It's gotta be this one. Never mind. She's only really had this one and the album before that were really album of the year caliber. But my thing is, if you get a Grammy cool, I just don't care what those people think about my music. And I never have. Like I actually watched the Grammys. And I found it to kind of be like wild off-putting. And I'm not exaggerating here. Over, under, you think there was a billion dollars worth of jewelry in that room? Because I think there was a billion dollars worth of jewelry. There were, Oh, like easily. Yeah, you, you saw people with millions of dollars of jewelry around their necks. And it was extra fly and like LLs out there in, the, in the di- with the diamond studded boom box and all of this. And I'm like, I like your boom box the way it was. You know, like, I'm very happy that all of you guys have gotten super duper rich. I just don't care about that a single bit. And I felt like it was much more a floss and flex than anything that ever had anything to do with music. And that kind of leads to something that's like fairly interesting and ironic about like the Harry Styles winning over Beyonce. Because what Beyonce put out with that last album, that is a hell of a piece of music. Like I'm not going to pretend like I listen to a lot of Harry Styles, so I can't like go in depth about like the musicianship and everything else or whatever. But Beyonce put out a really careful, thoughtful piece of music that like aimed to accomplish a whole bunch of different things and combined a lot of like I don't think sonically people a lot of people truly appreciate how many different genres were combined together in a lot of these tracks that are not. Like, just because they dance music doesn't mean they're necessarily supposed to all work together. Like, the Minneapolis sound and New Orleans bounce are completely different things. They were putting all this stuff together and making it work. Like, it was a legitimate tour de force. But, I mean, if the Grammys are the industry awards, does the industry care about actual significant music? Like, they know to put Kendrick Lamar up there. You're just supposed to. He's gonna get nominated for Album of the Year every time on the way out. He's won all those awards, you know, for being deep and all of that stuff. They're gonna know to put him on there. But that group of people does not take, our music seriously in that way. And they've never taken our music seriously in that way. So we just got to stop expecting it.
1: Hell, I mean, by that measure, like Bad Bunny should have been kind of pissed because like, I don't know that there's a more <laughs> internationally known, you who had a bigger year than him. Yo! That dude is like, but it's bananas how many people Like, love this dude, know this dude. Like, his international fame is crazy. I think his song, I forget the name of it, it had the most weeks at number one of any song of all those artists they nominated. So if another person who had a a right to be pissed was him.
2: That dude is selling out stadiums. And stadiums in them countries where them stadiums, yes, they got a stadium big enough for everybody to come to the soccer game. You know, like, I saw them clips of him in Puerto Rico i seen some of the clips, I think it was like South America or whatever it is. Like It's not my lane, it's not my jam, but he's got it. And I think something that happens when all these awards come, and this is something, I think, as I started working more in media and knowing how awards work and dealing with everybody around it and stuff, a place that I feel like I got to was I don't complain about who did or didn't win if I ain't listen to everything. I don't know. Like, Who am I to say the Harry Styles record wasn't as good as hers? I, I got no idea if that was the case. Bonnie Raitt won Song of the Year. And the thing was, if you looked at all them candidates, uh, the nominees, if Bonnie Raitt is your lane, she was the only person out of all those nominees that you were ever going to vote for. So that means that there's like an entire block of a certain like range of older white people that was all going to vote for Bonnie Raitt while the rest of the voters divided how many times amongst how many people. Like, that's how this works. Watch the Grammys for the performances. If you're lucky, you will get an enjoyable show. That's all you can really count on is getting yourself an enjoyable show.
1: All right, Bo, uh, to close this out, I'm going to play a game with you that I play with every guest that appears on the podcast. It's very simple. This is called This or That.
0: The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that.
1: I promise you, my friend, even though you manage to be very non-controversial yet provocative at the same time, (laughs) this is where the drama goes down. Everybody always gets caught up on this one. All right. So, first off, let's start with you were going to Clark, Atlanta, what years to what years? 97-01. Right. So you saw maybe perhaps peak Freaknik, if you will. <laughs> All right. I saw the last Freaknik. You saw the last Freaknik. Yes. All right. But you know what peak Freaknik was as the early 90s to, to mid 90s. So Freaknik in the early 90s to mid 90s or the CIAA tournament, late 90s, early 2000s, because I feel like that was the peak for that one.
2: Nah, Freaknik wins that one. <laughs> CIAA never really got over being a regional situation. You want to know the best Nick story I've ever heard? I absolutely do. Well, well, actually, the best one that I can tell here. <laughs> so a buddy of mine was talking about, he said he played ball at North Carolina Central. And he said him and his ball playing partners, they all tall and young or whatever. Or, or I think, yeah, he was at Central at the time. He said they strolling through, say they at Piedmont Park, they on the girls, they making it happen. And he said, next thing he knew, it was just a rush of girls just running. Just running, and he's like, "Yo, what's going on?" And he said he heard one of them go, "Girl, it's the Fab five And them girls had run across Peabody Park to go see the Fab Five, right? And so my man says later that day he stared it out, and his dude is with his girl, and the Fab Five rolled past, and I ain't gonna say which one of them it was, but one of them looked over. Saw the girl with the dude and just went, dug his finger out and said, Come here. And said, The dude stood there like, Are you serious? And she came right over there. Wow. Just rolled. Just, 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 just left him there standing for Dolo. All I'm (laughs) saying is, I ain't heard no story like that from (laughs) CIAA.
1: True that. All right. Bomani with hair or Bomani without hair?
2: Oh, man. I'm going with Bomani without hair. I like the Bomani with hair that I could still get cut and get aligned with because it grew all the way down. But without, hey man, it's low maintenance, baby. This is what it is. I've seen you have this
1: debate on Twitter before. Um, but I think it's worth your surfacing here now. In terms of just pure guitaring, Jimi Hendrix or Prince?
2: Oh, Jimmy's the greatest guitar. Jimmy's the number one on that one. Like Prince can do more stuff, but Jimmy make it feel more.
1: Who was right ultimately, Stringer or Avon?
2: Avon. Stringer wasn't right about a damn thing. <laughs>
1: You know the, the scene that never gets talked about. I I think like a, enough. And and by the way, like a lot of people, you I, I credit you fully all the time. I was like Bomani helped me see the light on Stringer Bell. I was blinded. I'm not gonna lie. Probably about to find this. I was blinded by it.
2: That's that's what I was about to say. I don't want to sleep with him. That made it very <laughs> easy for me to like get to the root of what time it was on that snake.
1: Yeah. And so by the time I think my third rewatch, then I was like, this dude really ain't shit. Like there was so much ain't shitness that I had just. Rationalize or overlooked but one of the scenes i don't think that gets talked about enough is when they finally fought it out and the level of like animosity between the two and they fighting it out and avon is checking him sh- his shit and he was like i told you about playing the fucking away games like that is a scene that i think is very underrated in the wire
2: the tragedy of stringer bill if you choose to view the snake is tragic is that he had these ambitions and was imprisoned by his surroundings and simply didn't realize that the game wasn't built for him to be able to do. He thought he had outsmarted the game and the game don't work that way. He thought he was smarter than all these other cats that didn't get it and did not realize Avon was just as smart as him and understood. No, what we got is this right here. Like, like this is this this is this is the game that we have to play and bless Stringer for thinking he could really pull that off. But then got out there and his problem was, and this is the biggest issue that Stringer Bell had. He thought that white folks was better people than him. He thought that Clay Davis was better people than him. He thought that they wasn't going to steal from him. Like the people in his world had were stealing and everything else. Like he did not realize that the game was the game. The only person out of all that Clay Davis, he got that. Avon got that too. He's like, yo man, it's still the game That scene in season three where them cats is playing string over that money and they take it acting like it's taking, you know, and Avon's like, so okay, so the loss is your fault, so you paying, right? Common sense logic, it's your fault, you pay. He saw through the game right there. Right. Not string. All oh, those people wouldn't lie to me.
1: <laughs> Which is
2: incredible. Like, where did you
1: come up with that? It's also very funny when I think it was Something about, like, he, you know, he goes to community college, reads a couple business pages.
2: It's like, all of a sudden, this motherfucker think that he's like Warren Buffett. I was like, what the, <laughs> the hell You is know what, happened? my biggest, the reason why the Stringer character makes me so angry is honestly the white people that watch The Wire. Because they the ones that let, like, they don't realize they doing it, right? But the fact that he the gangster that put on a suit, they think he was a better person. And the fact that he wanted to white collar gangster his stuff, they thought that that somehow made him a better person than the street bangers. Because in the end, man, you look around at all this stuff and all these things that have happened in the last few years that had to do with social stuff and everything else. And we don't watch all these people get all this money off of it. And everybody's cool with it. They claim they're down with some level of cause because they can respect the fact that somebody was trying to get some bread and that they were doing it through like whatever the slick means happened to be. But that's all it was. And that's Stringer Bell. string of Bell was still going to be selling dope. He just wasn't going to be banging on the street. He was still going to be as responsible for all the poison in the people and everything else. But he was going to put a suit on and get some real estate. And people somehow thought that that was morally superior. <laughs> I know. but like, That's what I hate about this. Ain't like he was ever shooting nobody. No way. He ain't no gangster.
1: And you know that if they had a modern day version of The Wire, he totally would have got all his shit in Bitcoin, right? Like he would have been that dude.
2: <laughs> yes. He would have got out of jail and been like, yo, so where the money? Right. <laughs> Exactly. Where the money at? What do what, what, what you mean we had $10 million?
1: He'd have put all that shit in crypto.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. I wish I had thought about that. Swearing he was ahead of the game.
1: I'm telling you. All right. And finally, last one. Equimini or Speakerbox Love Below?
2: Oh, Equimini. Not even close. And you know what the problem with Speakerbox Love Below is? The Love Below. That's the problem. <laughs> it's the Love Below. Not that the Love Below does not have heat. Not that the love below does not have gems, right? But it's an album by a dude that's not a very good singer, and trying to work through some of his issues. Big boys have is smoking, but Aquemini topped the to bottom. Now, I mean, I admit that came out my junior year of college. Like, I got an attachment to Equimini that is that is hard for me to like. Be sophomore year, sophomore year, I can't be so much so rational and so fair about it. But oh no, no, no that one is, was Liberation to be the best eight minutes of living for me musically to anybody. In fact, I'm about to put that on the record player when we get done.
1: (laughs) It's pretty hard to dispute it. You were a junior in college and I was a a little more grown (laughs) at that point but I remember hearing that for the first time and it just transports you to an emotional feeling that is very hard to recreate and every time I listen to Liberation, same emotional feeling and I think that to me is the magic of what they created with it.
2: You know, for me personally, so people who don't know i was born in atlanta and we moved to houston when i was seven and i left houston to go back to college in atlanta when i was 17. so i'm from houston but atlanta was always like a thing and i think that you know growing up the way that i grew up i never felt like fully in place in any sort of spot so one thing i always felt like i had an attachment to was atlanta although i had to move to atlanta to realize i did not really have an attachment to atlanta but like when southern player listed came out That's the part of town that my people lived in. I knew those streets, right? Like you're talking about Camelton Road and all of that stuff. I knew that. That was all very familiar to me in a way that even the Houston rap at the time wasn't familiar because Houston's so damn big and I didn't live in the part of town where the rappers live, right? Like I, wasn't no reason to go over there. That didn't mean anything to me. And so Southern Playalistic, I like super related to in that way. Then AT Aliens came out and it came out the year, my senior year of high school and I just got a car. And so I put, for my birthday, I got my mama to give me some speakers to put in the trunk, and I, you know, like I had done the whole thing in my '89 Corolla that had one rear view mirror, and that is like I knew that record front to back because I just listened to it so much, so much, so much. And so then Aquemini the comes out, and I'm in Atlanta, and like so much is going on around Aquemini. The like they got a night where they just playing all the songs on the radio, and we just burning gas riding around. We riding around and we hear, "Hey, they shooting the uh, It on the Barbie video at the Tabernacle." Y'all want to go? And now we just jumping in the car and going to do that. Like it was all, it all felt so close being there because they were the type of cast that was just around Atlanta dudes. You know what I mean? Like this is before a rapper had to move to L.A. Right? Every they was just there and they was around. And I'll just never forget the day that came out. They came out the same day that Jay Z's Volume Two came out. Tribe Call Quest Love Movement. Black Stars, that one record they put out, and Brand Nubian had just got back together with Grand Poobah, and it all came out. That was like the most electric day in the world, because everybody, like we all got the outcast, but it was like, so we could all make sure we had access. You go get the jay i get, I'll get the Brand Nubian. You get the Black Star. You get the Tribe. Okay, cool. Now our whole suite has all the tapes. Like It'll never be like that again.
1: That is, I mean, talk about what a time. That's like, what a fucking time. Um, Well, listen, Bo, I want to thank you for graciously giving me your time. Everybody, please watch Game Theory. I'm a HBO Max watcher, I have to say. I,
2: oh, no, I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, because uh, as you so, uh, you know, astutely put it before on a previous interview, it, Friday nights are a bit of a negotiation.
2: <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> That's what I be trying to tell people, man. I got to have a show the other person want to watch. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like at the very least, tolerate <laughs> friday nights are usually because
1: we're trying to catch up with other things from the week and there, or there's a movie we want to see and so i'm like i'll just bang it out on hbo uh max so i think your show's phenomenal like this is really really incredible work and it so fits you as i said so everybody please watch game theory hbo second season so happy for you bo and um i just know that even though you said if this if it ends right here, you're good or whatever. Man, this shit going to go some seasons. Don't even worry about it.
2: <laughs> I appreciate that. And after we stop recording, I have to tell you what my next dream project is. You'll appreciate
1: it. Oh, now that in this business is what we call a tease. All right, y'all. Bo's getting out of here. I'm going to find out the tea, which I won't share with y'all. Sorry. Uh, y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. So, men, I need a favor because you have one particular word that some of y'all still continue to use that's buried deep in your lexicon. And fuck it, I'm bothered that y'all are still using this word. The word I'm referring to is pause. Now, pause generally is not a bad word, but pause was co opted years ago. It isn't new and in case those who are not familiar, some men in particular use this word when they feel like they've said something that could be misinterpreted as, I guess, gay. To quote Seinfeld, not that there's anything wrong with that. Here's an example of how pause is sometimes
2: used. What do you think? Zach Randolph, Dan Dickow, Fred Jones for Steve Francis and Channing Frye. It's a good night in New York City. <laughs> it's a good night. So you like Zach Randall? I like the trade. I like Zach. I like Fred. I like Dick. You know, the, the pick.
1: Hey, listen. Grow up, Peter Pan. Come on, Count Chocula. Pause is expanded beyond juvenile innuendo. Case in point, I somewhat jokingly said on Twitter that men need to give themselves permission to actually say that they're going to brunch with their boys. But I soon discovered that some men, crazy as it may sound, aren't comfortable using the word brunch. In fact, one Twitter user responded to my observation about men and the word brunch and said, men can't say we're going to brunch. Pause. Like, why are you still saying pause at your big age? Because I looked at the profile picture and oh boy, definitely wasn't young. Pause is something a second grader would say. Not a grown man. And why do men care so much about such performative masculinity? So please retire the word, bury it in a box, throw it in the ocean so not even Jacques Cousteau could find it. No more pause. Stay unbothered.
0: Time to break you off with the fodder. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. My work, how I live. It. You don't want to miss it. I was born
1: to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper, and Project Manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Pry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. On behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music, you can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill.
0: This sound like theme music. She drop word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this to that. Get to choosing. <laughs> Pick one. Child of 75 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to last. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it, you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it, and you don't forget sit it. Sit back for a minute, I was born to get it.